0: Paranormal Radio.
1: So ahead of our discussion with David Marler and our guest co-host, Kurt Collins, I was reading the other day about the death of someone who's had a connection in the UFO field, Douglas Trumbull, the very famous special effects artist. He worked on 2001, A Space Odyssey, Star Trek, the motion picture. But really weird here is that in the 1980s, he kind of got out of the business because he was working on the film, I believe, called Brainwashed the stars natalie wood died up in some kind of weird boating accident i guess that freaked him out you know of course there's a lot of questions one could have asked but anyway douglas trumbull is dead i think at the age of 79 is that correct kurt
2: uh that sounds about right uh yeah it's it's a huge loss and so he was involved in some uh ufo research uh a a photographic plan I i don't uh I think um, uh, Mark Dan- Dantonio was uh, in-, in on that also. I think that may have stalled out, but you know it was a great, uh, great effort.
1: We had Mark on the Powercast a few years
2: back on that uh, on that project. That's that's one of many uh, attempts over the years to photograph UFOs or to detect them in some way. And of course, we've got some modern efforts to that. The Project Galileo. That's all I had to say on that. Now, let's get started with David. So when you were on the show last, um, you, we talked about, I, I wasn't on, it was with uh, Chris O'Brien. That was way back in January 25th, 2015. And any anyone that hasn't heard that show needs to go back because there was a lot of detail. You had had just, uh, you, you spoke about your book, Triangular UFOs, an estimate of the situation, and, and spent some time talking about uh, kind of a tangential matters about your... Uh, work as um, a hypnotherapist in treating sleep disorders, and you gave your opinion on abductions. So we, you know, anyone that wants to know more about that can, can go into that. But tell us a little bit about um, how you got into UFO research for the people that don't know you, and, and then that'll lead into what you're working on now.
3: Sure. Uh, well, thanks, uh, Kurt. Thanks, Gene, for letting me uh, come back on the show. It's great. And actually, hopefully later we'll talk, touch on this. But uh, the timing is perfect because I've just done a huge addition in my historical research on triangular UFOs. But to, to answer your question um, and to kind of segue back to Douglas Trumbull, you know, I grew up in the 1970s. I was born in 1968. And uh, when I was five years old, uh, I vividly remember the first time I heard the term UFO, and it was back in 1973, which, of course, was a pivotal year, as we know, and most of your audience knows, with regard to UFO sightings across North America. And uh, one particular area was in southeast Missouri called Piedmont, Missouri, and there was a wave of UFO sightings in that area. My father grew up there, and ironically enough, uh, years later, he moved to St. Louis, but The sightings were so prolific that it had really garnered a lot of media attention in the St. Louis market, both in newspapers as well as TV news. And so my father, my brothers, my older sister were piling in the car on weekends in the spring and summer of that year to go down to Piedmont to look for UFOs, as many people were doing from the St. Louis area. The, the media coverage really fueled a lot of people's curiosity with regard to the subject. In 73, I remember hearing the term UFO. I remember the excitement of my family piling in the old Chevy to go down to Piedmont to look for UFOs. They never came back with any UFO reports of their own. But my father's aunt and uncle, and many of the people that he grew up with, had had sightings. In fact, the initial primary witness, as we all know, when when you have a wave or a flap of UFO sightings, it starts with one initial sighting. And the initial sighting was by the local uh, basketball team and the basketball coach, whose name was Reggie Bone. And my father was best friends with Reggie growing up uh, in the Piedmont area back in the day. And I remember my dad saying, "If Reggie said he saw something, you can take it to the bank." And it 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 was true because Reggie was a pillar of the community, very well respected. It was a series of sightings uh, in 73 that really served as my introduction to the UFO subject hearing about it albeit secondhand, of course. Fast forward four years after that in 1977, my sister and her husband had a close encounter with a UFO just outside Kansas City, Missouri. I hate to say it, it sounds so cliche, especially as we e- evoke the name of Douglas Trumbull with Close Encounters, but they literally had a, a spotlight shine down on their car, much like Richard has had, although not the dramatic Hollywood effects that, that we saw in the movie, but they did have this silent object hovering over their car. It bathed the the vehicle in light, and just as soon as the light turned on, the light switched off like you flipped a light switch. To this day, my sister, when you ask her about that sighting, I've seen this time and time again where she'll be relaying the details, and you can see goosebumps decades after the event. She still has goosebumps that will form on her arms when she's talking to you about it. So that was another event that really kind of served to solidify my interest in the subject. And then quite literally the next year, 1978, uh, north of St. Louis, there was a a wave of UFO sightings or a flap, if you will, UFO sightings, and in this case, uh, also cattle mutilations. And ironically enough, years later, as I got actively involved in the subject, starting in 1990 with MUFON, I became friends, actually connected with the city marshal that was in charge back then and who was the epicenter of receiving all these UFO reports and cattle mutilation reports. And to this day, we still keep in touch, which is a long, enduring friendship as a result of his interest in the subject as well as mine
1: just parenthetically because it's not going to be the main focus with regard to cattle mutilations and as our listeners know one of our former co-hosts chris o'brien was one of the foremost experts on the subject do you have a feeling david as to what's responsible there
3: oh well i think this probably echoes uh, chris's statements on the matter i think you're dealing with a mix of things contrary to famous names like linda bolton howe that want to relegate it all to extraterrestrials i'm quite the opposite And I don't say that arbitrarily. Uh, When I moved uh, 10 years ago here to New Mexico, I became friends with the son of Gabe Valdez, Greg Valdez. I know that I believe he and Chris have talked and certainly Chris knew his his late father. But going through uh, Gabe's notes and talking to Greg... Uh, I defer to their judgment because they spent years in the field collecting these reports, at least within the confines of the state of New Mexico. I can't speak to some of the other areas that have had this. But specific to New Mexico, it was uh, Gabe's determination that these were military black ops. And they were engaged in chemical and biological weapons testing, as well as looking at radioactive fallout as a as a result of a thing called Project Gas Buggy, where a nuclear device was detonated underground to ostensibly to release natural gas reserves but um so there's a, a lot of different angles but of course, there are those highly anomalous uh mutilations that fall into the high strangeness category that are really bizarre in many respects. And again, I would defer to Chris because he's the expert on the subject. But, um, you know, unfortunately, what we deal with in this UFO field, and and Gene, I think, and Kurt, you probably agree, we deal with belief systems. And as I'm in the process of putting together a new lecture for 2022, hopefully in person after the last couple of years being remote and virtual, um, but we have to divorce ourselves from our beliefs regarding the UFO subject, unless it's predicated on facts and information and data. So many people in the UFO field, the the, the ones I would call UFO enthusiasts, not true researchers, develop these ideologies, these beliefs, and they, they have these sacred cornerstones. Uh, For example, if you dare question Roswell, that maybe Roswell was something other than an extraterrestrial craft, Um, you know, it's the equivalent of they want to cast stones at you for heresy. Uh, I must be
1: getting a lot of stones because I've questioned Roswell, as has Kurt. So we're both inundated.
3: Absolutely. And, you know, uh, uh, along with Roswell, of course, MJ-12, which, in my opinion, is thoroughly debunked. If anyone looks back at the history of how MJ-12 developed and they look at Bob Pratt and they look at Bill Moore and Richard Doty, if you follow the chain of evidence, if you follow the story back to the original source with many of these belief systems, you find that they're highly questionable at best. Um, So I don't try to fall into that, that, down that rabbit hole of belief with regard to many of the central tenets of the UFO mythology, if I can call it that. Before we go
1: into more rabbit holes, we've got David Marler and Kurt Collins and Gene Steinberg. You're in the Paracast. Hey, listeners, I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about after the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus Once again, the paracast.plus. Prices are just 50 a week less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out the paracast.plus to learn more
4: about Paracast+.
1: David Marler joining us, of course. He has been doing lots of studies into triangular UFOs. And we mentioned Gabe and Greg Valdez. And The son was a guest on the Paracast back August 4th, 2013. So we've got lots of good stuff in our archives, theparacast.com. They won't let that URL appear on Facebook, but I also understand that Tim Beckley, the late Tim Beckley, and Tim Swartz's site, conspiracyjournal.com, is not allowed either. Isn't that weird? So that's called they want you to have the truth. Seriously speaking, I'm looking here at one thing about your bio that's interesting. It says you've got this huge personal library of UFO material. (laughs)
3: Yeah, that started in 1990 when I first got involved in UFO research. You know, Gene, it's rather naive to to tell you the story now, and, and Kurt, because looking back on it, in 1990, when I first got involved in UFOs, I naively thought, well, I'll just go to the local library and check out books on the subject. And after two or three or four or five visits to all the area libraries, I was shocked and dismayed to find that there were virtually few, if any, books on the UFO subject in the local library and of course at that time the the internet was in its infancy and uh I was slowly, steadily starting to collect little bits of history, little bits of information, and then you know, fast forward 32 years later, I have a uh, new addition I put onto the home in the last uh, three to four years to accommodate this this burgeoning collection of UFO history. I will tell you, as I'm sitting here now speaking with you, just recently in the last year, I was asked to join the board of the Center for UFO Studies as their official archivist, and so quite literally sitting. To To my right, here in the research room, I have 15 four- and five-drawer file cabinets of the world's largest historical UFO case file collection, including the personal files, Blue Book files, of Dr. J. Allen Hynek, which are very insightful. But in addition to that, I have a comprehensive library of audio recordings. In the last year, I just digitized 221 vintage reel-to-reel recordings, and some of those are available on my website to listen to but those were recorded courtesy of Rod Dyke who's an archivist and collector who's been in the field for many years. Rod uh, donated those to the collection when he found out I had the NICAP Kufos case files here and, and these file these audio uh, tapes belong to NICAP. So after decades of separation we were able to reunite those and bring those together. In addition to that, I received uh, a number of other donations over the years from other researchers. Jan Aldridge donated over 160 reels of microfilm. These contain news clippings, government documents dating back to World War II. Through the very generous donation of a benefactor uh, about two years ago, we were able to secure a microfilm digitization machine. Slowly but surely, we're working on those microfilms to digitize those as we are with the case files and the audio recordings with the ultimate goal to have those digitally available online for free, no charge, and really allow worldwide researchers to have access to that material. There's a a wealth of history, and I, I try to educate my audiences when I do lectures across the country. There is no shortage of UFO data, I'm here to tell you. What's interesting is it's a fascinating trend, and I was just talking to someone in Colorado about this, that we have organizations like MUFON and others uh, across the globe that collect these files. And I don't mean to be disparaging regarding their efforts, but why collect another thousand case files when you have 75 years worth of case files that most people aren't doing anything with? Quite literally, this year marks the 75th anniversary of the term flying saucer, the the modern era of UFO research. And so 7.5 decades worth of uh, UFO material is at our disposal. And so the goal ultimately is to gather it, scan it and make it available to a wider audience. Because as you both know and your audience knows, in just the last two years, we've had a lot of people starting to flood this field that, you know, previously never gave the UFO subject a second thought.
1: You know, it's interesting here in terms of UFO files and records. Last I heard, the APRO files were still left in somebody's garage and a bunch of file cabinets and nothing was done with it. Any updates on that?
3: Uh, No updates other than uh, I will share with you. uh, There are two people uh, principally that were involved in getting those files from APRO after Jim and Coral Lorenzen died. I was informed through my friend and colleague, Philip Mantle in the U.K., that he had been in touch with one of the owners of the files. And the second owner, a woman by the name of Tina Choate, uh, actually passed away a number of months ago. So it's down to the one owner now, not, not two, but just one individual. I've attempted to reach out to that person. I've shared the contact information with a number of other researchers. In fact, I mentioned Colorado. I had a researcher from Colorado just last week inquire about it and i said you know here here's the information if you can have better luck than myself then good luck but ideally gene that is kind of the the holy grail of uh ufo history it would be wonderful if we could get those files in conjunction with the nicap files and the kufos files um you know what an amazing amount of data sets that we would have at our disposal I wanted to uh, to uh,
2: give the listeners an example of some of the things. So, so I, um, you've been working with Barry Greenwood, and I asked him about um, a case that I was writing about, the Carol Wayne Watts case, because I yes. knew he had been in contact with um, with Dr. Heine, Dr. Mm-hmm. J. Allen Heine. So, uh, you guys produced this packet of information, and I had tons of things, newspaper clippings and photos. Um, So what you guys sent me was amazing. There was, uh, first of all, rare clippings that I hadn't seen. There was – and more importantly, there was correspondence between the witness and Dr. Hynek and a copy of Hynek's uh, file, uh, a copy of the Blue Book file with his handwritten notes on it. Yes. Let's see. And then there was an audio tape uh, interview, a phone call between the witness. And so this was just incredible that all this this um, raw data on the case that was not available anywhere else. And that's I'm sure that's just just one of probably thousands of examples of what's out there.
3: Oh, absolutely, Kurt, and I'm really glad you brought that up because we haven't really had a chance to talk in person since since we uh, got that data to you. But I have to tell you that beyond collecting the material, uh, I get the biggest joy – out of sharing from one researcher to another information, because I know what it's like when you're doing an investigation and you're researching these historical cases. You know, there aren't many areas that you can mine for data. And when you do find those little nuggets of uh, information and insight, it's just it's just a joy. And again, I say that as one researcher to another. Uh, I know what it's like when you have that eureka moment, when you find new information. And uh, I have to tell you that, Uh, as a result of your request, I stumbled across those those reel-to-reels in the file Uh, Those had never been digitized before, but at your request for information, I I pulled the file and found those reels sitting in there. And so I was able to digitize those for the first time. And the beautiful thing is when I get requests like this, and I probably average one request per week on average. Some weeks I get two, some weeks I get none. But on average, I probably get one data request a week Um, that either comes directly through Kufos or directly to myself. And, um, you know, the nice thing is, is when we digitize that for you, for example, we now have it digitized for others if other interested parties are, are wanting that. So uh, I'm, I'm just so glad that we were able to help you in your research efforts in that regard. Oh, well, that's great.
1: Let's break it here and we'll get into that. We have Kurt and Dave and Gene. You're in the Paracast. <laughs>
4: USA Radio News with
10: Wendy King.
5: Russia is getting closer to Ukraine's capital, Kiev. The Pope has called Ukrainian President Zelensky. He says he welcomes an offer from Turkey to broker peace talks and says through an interpreter...
1: Our main objective is to end this carnage. The losses of the enemy are very serious. There are hundreds, hundreds of dead soldiers who crossed our border, who came to our land. Unfortunately, we have losses
11: too.
5: Military analyst Jack Watling warns Russia plans to circle the capital and then attack.
11: If we start seeing rolling lines of thermobaric rocket launchers coming up, then, you know, we're going to see mass civilian casualties.
5: Secretary of State Antony Blinken authorized $350 million to help Ukraine fend off the Russians. This is USA Radio News. President Biden's nominee for the Supreme Court, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, introduced herself to the nation on Friday. She would be the first African-American woman on the high court, if confirmed. I can only hope that my life and career... My love of this country and the Constitution and my commitment to upholding the rule of law and the sacred principles upon which this great nation was founded will inspire future generations of Americans. Forecasters say an Arctic front projected to swing down from Canada into the northeast will bring another round of snow showers on Sunday. Weathermen say the snow showers are likely to develop across northern and central Michigan before transitioning eastward into New York, Pennsylvania, Connecticut, Vermont, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, and Maine. The strong front is expected to ramp up windy conditions across the northeast. You're listening to USA Radio News.
12: this is Jerome Clark, author of the UFO Encyclopedia and other books.
13: You're listening to the Paracast.
1: Kirk Collins was about to ask a question of our guest. Go ahead, please.
2: Well, David, earlier you were talking about the uh, all the new people that have become interested. And one of the things that, that have in these files does is to see that some of the, I think the phrase is institutional knowledge is shared. And, you know, there's so many, uh, well, you know, in the business world, you always have people retiring and everything. And and while UFO researchers do tend to stick around past retirement age, typically, you know, they're mortal, we're we're losing them. So this, having this preserved and shared is, is, is so important. Tell us a little bit about who you're working with, and um, what are some of the surprises you found in these files?
3: Sure. Man, where to start? There's there's so much. Well, as you mentioned, I've been working very closely with Barry Greenwood, who has always been a mentor to me. And now I'm happy to say he's not only a colleague, but a dear friend, uh, as well as Jan Aldrich. And I think, you know, anybody would agree that Barry and Jan are probably the leading historians on the UFO subject. I mean, they've been doing this decades before this guy ever came along into the subject. And so I remember uh, following their, their writing, Barry Greenwood's book, of course, Clear Intent was just, to me, still is one of the landmark books on the subject, uh, backed up with official documentation, etc. But in September, uh, I was very happy to have Barry and Jan come out to my home here in Albuquerque. And my wife and I put Barry and Jan up here at the house. They quite literally were live-in researchers for two straight weeks. And so, obviously, from a research standpoint, that's great. But just to have that personal camaraderie is also fascinating, the conversations we have over the dinner table and things like that. Barry has been uh, scanning documents uh, for quite a few years. But having them here now in a home environment uh, is really affording him an opportunity to come and scan quite a bit between Jan and Barry, just to give you some insight into that. In two weeks, they scan thirty three thousand pages of documents. I mean, they quite literally would get up in the morning get their coffee, start scanning, uh, taking staples out, paper clips, et cetera, scanning material. And I do want to mention that I have been fortunate to have a few financial benefactors. And there was a very generous man who really was pivotal to us getting this work done. Uh, he donated $6,500 to allow us to buy a commercial-grade scanner as well as the microfilm scanner that I alluded to earlier. And so it's not without these these contributions that we can try to get a lot of this, this work done. And then in addition to that, I mentioned Rod Dyke, who's donated these audio recordings. And I am awaiting uh, two to three more large boxes of vintage historical recordings, which I'll be digitizing. My research room, if I can try to describe it, we have a huge conference table. We have about 36 file cabinets on one side. We have 10 bookcases lining the wall, almost floor to ceiling, with just books and periodicals. And then we're also in the process this spring of basically taking over our garage. Uh, My wife and I are going to be losing our garage, and we're converting that into 323 additional square feet of archival storage space. And before I forget, one of the principal reasons we're doing this is philip mantle uh, in the uk is donating his extensive 40 45 year collection of case files to us i recently spoke with philip and i said i'm just trying to quantify how much material are we talking he said well it'll be a pallet of paperwork so it's going to be a sizable collection coming from the uk that will have uh you know not only british but obviously other european files uh regarding ufo sightings uh so we're really excited it, it, i always like to say that The collection is in a constant state of flux. It's not a static collection. Another thing, before I forget, someone else that I've been in collaboration with who is not really within the domain of the UFO research field, I have an extraordinary working relationship with the University of New Mexico here in Albuquerque. And I actually uh, presented to them several years ago about my research and the subject matter. And, of course, this was before 2017, before we really started seeing that erosion of skepticism on the part of many institutions. And they were fascinated by the material that I was sharing with them. And long story short, I entered into a legal deed of gift. So when I pass away – and, Kurt, you alluded to you know, older researchers passing away and their data getting lost – When I pass away, the University of New Mexico will take this entire collection and maintain it for perpetuity at the university for the general public and academics and scholars to come and do research. So whatever material that I gather here will ultimately be preserved in a university setting. And I was lucky enough to be asked to speak at the university on the UFO subject, which is an opportunity not afforded to many people. We had about 150 people that attended, uh, uh, teachers, general public, had a number of police officers from Albuquerque that attended, and we even had a little gallery display of select items from my collection that were on display so people could get an appreciation for it. As far as surprises along the way, I was actually on the phone, this is about eight months ago with, uh, or nine months ago now, with Barry and Jan. And they will call me periodically saying, hey, I'm trying to find information on this case from 1960 or 1958. And so I'll, I'll put them on speakerphone and run over to the files, what I call the archive section, and try to find any information I can. You know, Much like your, your request, Kurt, you know, I'll run over to the files and see what I can locate. And in this particular instance, Barry Greenwood was looking for a UFO case file from the Yukon Territory from October 1950. They're talking about and I said, gentlemen, you keep talking. I'm going to put you on speaker and I'm going to go over to the file and start rummaging through these files while you're while you're chatting. And as I'm going through one of the many files for October 1950, I stumbled across a NICAP report form. It's one of those weird synchronicities where if anybody else would have looked at this form, they wouldn't have given it a second thought. But the witness name caught my attention. The witness name was Hulon, H-U-L-O-N. PACE, P-A-C-E, obviously not a common name. It's not Joe Smith or or, or Bill Brown. So the name was Hulon Pace. Based on my research of the Farmington Flying Saucer Armada from March 1950, I recognized the name because about six years ago, I filed a FOIA request for unredacted Air Force Office of Special Investigations files specific to the Farmington Flying Saucer Armada, One of the names that was unredacted was Hulon Pace. So I then proceed to pull the file out. And as I'm looking at it, it is relating in detail and location the sighting that occurred in March of 1950. However, it was filed under October 1950. Ironically enough, as I continue to scan the document, the witness... Told the investigators when he was being interviewed, and the interview was conducted, I believe, in 1967, so the report form was from 67. He told the interviewers that the sighting happened in October 1950, but again, clearly. All of the details lined up. It was clearly March 1950. And for any investigators or researchers listening, and Kurt you, or Gene, you may have dealt with this yourself, quite often witnesses years after the fact won't remember the exact month or maybe even the year. But they'll remember something as personal as, well, I remember I was wearing that my favorite leather jacket. So it had to be pretty cold. So it had to be spring or fall or maybe even winter. And so I think it's one of those situations where the witness – thought it was fall of 1950 when in fact it was March what's unique Hmm. about this discovery we're talking about a case from 1950 despite the interviews despite the news clippings and other information that I've gathered on the subject even going to the James McDonald archives to get his personal notes on his investigations we did not have one eyewitness sketch of the actual UFOs that were observed on those three days in this case file we have sketches of the objects. We have a map showing the direction that they flew in, how they had a quote-unquote dogfight over the city. And then it shows the direction that they departed. In addition to that, again, after 70-plus years, we have two or three additional eyewitness names that were not part of the historical record.
1: That's so interesting there that it sometimes takes coordinating a number of separate reports to get a full picture on a specific event. By the way, for our listeners' attention, Barry Greenwood appeared on the Paracast on our October 3rd, 2021 episode. Our guest co host then is now Kurt Collins. David Marlar joins us. You're in the Paracast.
0: Coming of the Protectors. Find out more at Rockoids.com. That's Rockoids, R O C K O I D S.com.
13: Has your body ever gone low blood sugar, feeling weak, shaky, knowing you better eat something fast? We all know high blood sugar can lead to many metabolic problems. At GCNteam.com, we have a healthy blood sugar pack focusing on the structure and function of stable blood sugar. Find us at GCNteam.com or call 877-878-4203. Nothing feels worse than unstable blood sugar. Call 877-878-4203. That's 877-878-4203.
15: So sign up for free at ParanormalDate.com. That's ParanormalDate.com. Use the code word George and start meeting others. Get going now and connect with someone you like.
10: Jake was in big trouble with the IRS. He owed how much? 92. Take Jake's advice. Give federal tax management a phone call. If they help me, they can help anybody. Call the federal tax management hotline now. 800-503-8625. 800-503-8625. 800-503-8625. Hi, this is James Fox. You're listening to the
16: Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: Interesting there on the phone, finding something, information that was not recorded in other reports. How does one coordinate all this? You were lucky, if anything else, David. Obviously, there's a lot more out there like that, where there's 10 different reports, and if you coordinate them all, you get a very big picture of a sighting.
3: Absolutely, Gene. And, and in fact, uh, you know, I, I'd like to say, I chalk it up to me being a good researcher, but to be quite honest with you and your audience, I think it's 50% that and 50% dumb luck in some cases. You know, sometimes you just happen to fall on something. But this is what's interesting is Barry and Jan and I were talking, we try to enlist local help to assist us with the archiving efforts. But the problem is, you just can't have anybody coming in here without having some fundamental working knowledge of the material again. If it wasn't for the fact that I had done this detailed research on Farmington, if anyone else looked at that name, it wouldn't have registered. But it immediately clicked in my brain, and I pulled that file out, and I was able to make that connection. But it does demonstrate. Many people quite often will say, well, you know, there's always the cynics out there, right, especially in ufology. Well, you know, why are we investigating these old cases? They're decades old. For the mere fact that even decades later, we can get new insights into some of these cases with these discoveries going through the historical data. Another example, I've done extensive research on the Battle of L.A. incident. That one was a fascinating case in that in addition to being a historian and a researcher, I'm also a collector. I like to have original historical items And ironically enough, on eBay, where quite often I find some of these things periodically, there was an original photograph of that famous image of an object in the convergence of searchlights being peppered with anti-aircraft fire. The individual in question was uh, showing pictures of the photo, but also the, the reverse, showing the original news teletype glued to the back. And having done historical research now for over 30 years, I have many different types of news service wire photos. So I know the earmarks, the the ownership stamps to look for, et cetera. And clearly, this was the real deal. Luckily, I won the the bid on this. But this is an example where being a collector and being a researcher come together. I received the photograph, and I was elated. And in fact, it's, it's hanging up here in the research room. But this led to dialogue, as you can imagine, with the seller. Uh, My first question, first and foremost, where did you get this photograph? Well, emails led to phone calls, which led to Skype calls, uh, video calls. The gentleman was a very nice uh, man who lives in, I believe it's Woodlawn Hills, California. I believe it's a suburb of Los Angeles. He told me that he and his wife on weekends will go to uh, area rummage sales and estate sales. And his wife wanted to go to this one, which is only, I think he said, about three miles from where they lived. So, you know, in the immediate vicinity, and his wife was looking in the front yard at some of this uh, merchandise that was for sale. He was rather bored, and his attention was drawn to a a large six-foot-long folding table sitting in the front yard with merchandise on top. But then his attention was drawn to these two large file boxes uh, sitting on the ground underneath this table. He crouches down, and he starts flipping through these obviously aged file folders, and each file folder had a separate 8x10 glossy black-and-white photograph. And on the reverse, much like the, the, the photograph I purchased, were the original news teletypes, dated and stamped and everything. He noticed that one young lady seemed to be kind of running the show. And so he said, you know, ma'am, if you don't mind me asking, where did you get these boxes and these photographs? Naively enough, she said, oh, those belong to my grandfather. He was a photographer with the Associated Press. And as best as we can ascertain, this was his personal portfolio of photographs he took over about a 30, 40 year period working for the Associated Press. After that, I was able to get in touch with the family. They provided ample evidence of uh, press pins, photographs of the, the grandfather who had passed away, I believe, in, in the 1966, I believe, at a very old age. But they showed photographs of him with his camera uh, in the Los Angeles area. I was able to receive uh, documents showing where his studio was in Hollywood, California. And then, having the name, I started doing an internet search and I only found two or three hits on the internet, but one of them was extremely interesting. It showed a photograph, and and your audience may be able to even Google this and look it up if it's still online. It was a photograph of Japanese citizens being rounded up in Los Angeles in early February 1942. This was just approximately two weeks before the Battle of L.A. incident. So in addition to having these photographs, which included the famous Battle of L.A. photo, we have information that he had a studio in Hollywood, California, And we have historical documentation. He was in Los Angeles two weeks prior to the Battle of L.A. incident. Of course, he lived and worked there, so it's no surprise he took photographs from that time period. But long story short, everyone's enamored with that mysterious photograph that's become the centerpiece of the Battle of L.A., but hardly anyone's ever asked the question, well, who took it? Well, based on my research, I'm 95 percent certain that the gentleman's name was Ira W. Goldner. And he was the one that I believe took the famous photograph based on the fact we found an original photograph stamped and dated February 25th, 1942, with the original teletype connected to it.
2: Wow, well, that's, that's amazing that you not only got that, but were able to track all that down. And yeah, so it, there, there aren't too many artifacts like that, that, you know, we can trace, uh, and know the history of, and things like that, um, you know, there's so, you know, we, so many of the things we have are like, okay, here's a, here's a piece of a UFO, but where did it come from? I mean, it is, is there any real history to it? You know, so this is, you know, the next best thing, you know, where this came from. I wanted to ask about, um, we were talking about the the news, and how, how things changed. Um, so, Word came that a, a prominent Canadian figure in the disclosure movement has released a statement deciding that the U.S. government's legislation to approve UAP um, investigation. He says that progress since 2017 made by people like Chris Mellon, Luis Elizondo, the New York Times, scientist Avi Loeb, and many others has rendered traditional investigation of UFOs redundant.
3: So, so David, what are you going to do with all your free time? <laughs> well, uh, I would have to politely uh, disagree with that statement for a number of reasons, um, and one being what's sitting here next to me. Um, many of these UFO reports over the decades were not submitted to Project Blue Book. Those reports and information went to civilian UFO investigative organizations, I would argue that even moving forward into the future, uh, that may be a trend where people are going to be more willing to reach out to MUFON or to an independent local investigator as opposed to, you know, trying to communicate with the quote unquote government. Um, But also, I think it's rather naive to assume just because institutions are officially acknowledging that they're looking at the subject, that they're going to share any data with us. And I don't say that arbitrarily. Uh, I, I've made the the statement many times that we have these famous DoD videos that came out in roughly what 2017, after or 2018, uh, around the time frame of the New York Times article. We still have yet to obtain one official page of documentation to support those videos, or better yet, any type of official government analyses of those photos. So, yes, they acknowledge the phenomenon is real. Yes, we know that they're actively looking at the subject. But I think it's naive to then assume that they're going to share information with us. And I think it's naive to assume that they're going to collect all the UFO data that's out there. And again, If the past is prologue, uh, NICAP was collecting a lot of uh, UFO case reports that, as far as we know, the government was unaware of. And I say that because I can compare and contrast the Project Blue Book files and other government files that have been declassified with some of these uh, official NICAP report forms.
1: I also wanted to hear what kind of outreach project blue book ever made to get sightings they basically received them followed them up in occasions where they couldn't debunk them but didn't go out there with the current ufo projects and there have been four of them it looks like we had the first two that coincided with the new york times article we had the pentagon uap task force report we now have number four with the 2022 military budget but there has been no press conference per se right I mean, we have someone like Helene Cooper from The New York Times, their Pentagon correspondent. She covers a Pentagon beat. She frequently appears on cable news talking about what she does. But I don't hear a press conference where Helene Cooper is saying, well, what about this UFO research or UAP right. research. What are you guys doing about it? What are you guys doing about all these thousands and thousands of cases that have occurred over the years? Wouldn't exploring them, gathering them, help you figure out what's going on? Does it have to be 2004 and later? Big question. David Marlar joining us. Of course, he has amazing amounts of UFO files to study triangular UFOs with Kurt Collins, our special guest co host. I'm Gene Steinberg. you
2: in the Paracast.
8: Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today.
1: Hey, listeners. I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about after the Paracast.
18: 800-507-3137. That's
0: 800-507-3137. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
1: So I don't know that we're going to be irrelevant anytime soon. But when I see that letter that Kurt forwarded to me, I think of something that Major Kehoe wrote for one or more of the issues of NICAP's UFO investigator, which is I want to put NICAP out of business. He was under the belief, very naive, it turned out, but I think it was naive when he voiced it, which was if you got Congress to investigate, they take care of it. They reveal the truth and I can go. Back doing whatever I'm doing, I guess, in his case, writing mystery fiction or something like that. But in this case, it's pretty clear that whatever the Pentagon is doing is only a microcosm in terms of the UFO mystery.
3: It is. And again, uh, Gene, you touched on something that's extremely important and something I really try to drive home. So I'm really glad you brought it up. And that is, if you look at the, and I use the term disclosure, and I always like to delineate disclosure with a lowercase d, not disclosure with an uppercase d, with the disclosure that they're acknowledging that there is a phenomenon out there. When you look at the Pentagon report and subsequent discussions and and, uh, talking points, it's almost as if If you didn't realize or know any better, the phenomenon started in 2004 with the Nimitz incident. And of course, we know that's not the case. And as I alluded to earlier, looking back on these historical cases, we can gain new insights. There's been much to do about Dr. Avi Loeb and uh, the Galileo Project and others. It's interesting because many of those individuals and institutions have stated. We're not going to look back at the past. We're only going to move forward with scientific scientific acumen to examine the UFO subject. With all due respect, I think that's somewhat short-sighted. As I mentioned you know, at the top of the show, this is the 75th anniversary of the UFO subject. Are you telling me that in 75 years' worth of civilian government case files, not just United States but worldwide, you're telling me there is nothing of value in those files? And one more follow-up question – how can you say that if you haven't looked at those files?
2: Yeah, that's a good point. And so there's no doubt, and I think their their point of view is that it's been p- polluted with, with hoaxes and exaggeration and mistakes and things like that, which kind of brings me to a point I wanted to ask about. I know in your triangular UFO research, you've targeted specific things to help weed those out. So can we talk about how you get to the genuine
3: cases? Absolutely. I mean, it's a great question, Kurt. First and foremost, I mean, as any investigator worth their salt knows, we don't go in looking for extraterrestrial craft. If anything, we take a UFO report and we try our darndest to find a prosaic conventional explanation. And much like the Air Force was ostensibly doing. But in many cases, uh, you know, when we have these triangular craft that are being described that are apparently low altitude completely silent in rural settings where there's no background noise drowning out the sound of an aircraft, when there's no exhaust uh, when there's no sound. these are anomalous characteristics that that bear out time and time again with many of these Now, I will say in contrast, there was uh, several years ago a professional photographer that took a photo of a high altitude triangular aircraft moving over Wichita, Kansas. It was again high altitude, not low altitude like many of these are described and you had characteristic contrails coming out the back. So clearly, if it's high altitude and you see contrails like a conventional aircraft, it is probably some type of military vehicle. We have triangular aircraft. We have had triangular aircraft. In fact, in my new lecture, I talk about all the Delta Wing configurations that were existing back in the 1950s and 60s. One of the most prevalent was the Vulcan bomber in the UK. And ironically enough, In the flying saucer clubs in the U.K. back in the 60s, when triangles were being reported, which, again, many people don't know about the long history of them, they were calling them in the U.K. silent Vulcans because whereas they were large, they were triangular, they were completely silent, much like the reports today – I alluded to the fact that uh, I put a new presentation together, and again, the timing of this show is great since we talked about my book the last time shortly after it came out. The last year, I have gone through an exhaustive review for the first time ever of the NICAP Kufos case files. I have spent weeks and months going through these files, uh, news clippings, military reports, etc. Uh, I found over a hundred triangular UFO reports from 1947 to 1977. And the reason I stopped at 77 is for a very valid reason. I uh, had the opportunity to be on the TV show Unidentified for the History Channel a couple of years ago with Chris Mellon. And Chris Mellon came here and we were going through some of my research on triangles in that show in the final edit. They had a UK researcher uh, that stated that, well, the triangles really weren't being reported until the 1970s. And ironically enough, it coincided with the release of the movie Star Wars, where people saw this huge triangular imperial star destroyer coming into view. So David Clark, who was the researcher, basically made the assumption that he feels popular culture shaped the UFO reporting. And that's why we have reports of triangular UFOs. Well, I started to go from 1977 backwards to 1947, and I'm here to tell you, as I'll be lecturing across the country this year, um, I'm going to show you never-before-seen case files from NICAP, from Kufo's, going back to 47, whereby we're not only seeing triangular craft, but we're seeing triangular craft exhibiting the characteristics that I outlined in my book in 2013 based on the available data sets I had at the time. So as I like to say, it was it it was the best outside validation for my research because the characteristics that I outlined in my book are exemplified in these, if I can say, new old reports. And so there is clearly a pattern here of characteristics and flight dynamics associated with this subset of of triangular UFOs.
2: I was never that interested in triangular UFOs, and it caused me to over look your book and your research initially. And I've, I've come to sense appreciate it, and, and and I see that one of the things that you um, that you're doing there it 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 does help to uh, find good cases because these are not um, well, like so often a light in the sky can appear spherical oh, sure. or saucer shaped and something. So you're dealing with something a little more distinct and it's less likely to be a misinterpretation of a star astronomical body.
3: I agree, Kurt. And in fact, I call the, I, I reference the triangular UFOs as it falls into the category of unambiguous UFO sightings. To your point, many of the reports in the NICAP files, and, and I think you and, and Gene alluded to this earlier, uh, of a large percentage of these UFO case files describe something that looked like a flat fireball, flew like a fireball, disappeared like a fireball, and was seen over multiple states. Well, if it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it probably is a duck. <laughs> there's no need to look for an extraterrestrial explanation, but there's many fireball sightings, meteor sightings, uh, balloon sightings. I know people laugh at that because of the, the ubiquitous Air Force explanation of weather balloons, but There were many weather balloons that were sighted and high-altitude research balloons that were sighted that were demonstrably proved to be uh, atmospheric high-altitude balloons. One was a triangular French balloon, meteorological balloon, that was uh, sighted over Madrid, Spain. And this garnered tons of media attention. It's probably the most well publicized and documented triangular UFO sighting, if I can use that term. But uh, we have an official letter from the meteorological department in Spain uh, that states, and it's signed by the director of the Meteorological Society there, that it was a French high altitude balloon that had basically generated all of these UFO reports. And there was a photo that circulated at the time, and the photo certainly looks like other photos of this triangular object, which basically it was an, it, it was initially described as triangular, but really it was an inverted pyramid. So you have this um, kind of upside-down triangle with a point at the bottom. And ironically enough, it bears striking similarities to a uh, Soviet military uh, piece of film footage over uh, Riga, Latvia, that was uh, filmed, uh, actually, I believe, within 30 days of the Madrid sighting. um, With all due respect to uh, Jeremy Corbell and George Knapp, they uh, referenced this as being an interesting corollary to the night vision footage of these pyramidal UFOs that were being seen. But uh, I, I believe that the most prosaic explanation for that Russian military footage is it was an atmospheric balloon.
1: Let's have this. Explanation, then we'll have more with David, Gene, and Kurt You're in
2: the Paracast.
1: Hey, listeners, I want you to have the entire Paracast experience, so I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. Once again, theParacast.plus. Prices are just dollar fifty a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more
19: about Paracast Plus. Are you ready to retire? Inflation is picking up, markets are volatile, and the dream of a comfortable retirement is harder to attain than ever before. The stock market goes up and down is beyond your control, but you're at a point in your life where you can't afford to make big financial mistakes. I'm Al Ibarroa, founder of Nine Strategic Wealth. Our investment strategy allows you to go up with the stock market, lock in your gains, and when the stock market goes down, your investment won't lose a dime. This works for your investments, savings at a brokerage firm, or even money at a bank. It's
13: and many other hard-working people just like you, buying products and services from companies just like yours. Many companies owe their success to radio. It's the engaging medium. Call 877-996-4327 or email advertise at GCNlive.com. That's advertise at GCNlive.com.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: Now that you've had those explanations, David Marler continues his fascinating discussion. He's the easiest interview ever. You just say, go ahead, and you just sit down.
2: (laughs) Well, let's throw a curveball in here. Uh, So we hear a lot about whistleblowers, and sometimes they're anonymous, and they come up with sensational stories. Usually you're not able to verify any of the information. Do you have any examples of a whistleblower whose stories, you know, was proven to be true?
3: I don't think I've had anybody approach me that was a quote-unquote whistleblower, but Kurt, uh, I'm I'm really glad you brought that up because unlike a lot of researchers in this field, and we don't need to mention names, I think we all know some of those individuals, when you start lecturing and writing books on a perpetual basis predicated on quote-unquote unnamed government insiders or unnamed individuals or individuals that want to remain anonymous, I have to be very suspect. As we were touching earlier, when it comes to information, the information is only as good as the provenance that you can establish. And there is this propensity for people to gravitate towards the sensational. They love to hear the whistleblower stories. They love to see these purported MJ-12 documents surfacing left and right. But if you can't verify the source of the information, you can't verify the information itself. I'd like to think I'm the antithesis of these researchers that are out there that that, that basically promulgate these spurious government documents and these so called government insider claims. I'm not gullible in the sense that if someone tells me something, I just readily believe it. Uh, I try to verify it or I try to corroborate it with other information. There's a history of hoaxers and liars and con artists. Unfortunately, they still pollute the field today. One of the best compliments I get when I've done lectures over the years uh, or people contact me with regard to my book, they state, "I I love your research because you always cite your references. When I was in college, I mean, that was just research 101. You write a paper you cite your references. If people have questions about the veracity of the information, or for that matter, if they want to take it to the next level, you need to point them in the direction so they know where to begin. In all of my lectures, for those that have ever attended any or seen any online, I always have my references at the bottom of each slide. Conversely, we see some of these researchers that quote these insider information, and you have no recourse to verify it, to properly vet the material. And so you're quite literally left with, I either believe it or I don't. This, this should not be a subject predicated on belief. We should be able to use our brains effectively to weigh the information, to vet the informational sources, and then try to make sense out of the subject.
2: That's a big, big problem. There's just so many of these campfire stories that, that circulate and then recirculate when someone discovers them later. It goes on and on. Mm-hmm. When you were talking about uh, mutilations earlier and the, uh, that it could have been a, attached to a government project, did you get the suggestion that UFOs were used as a cover story for this uh, operation?
3: Yes. And again, I'm saying this not based on my research, but the information of Greg and Gabe Valdez. That, that was basically their assessment after Greg's late father for decades followed the subject here in New Mexico. Yes, uh, they were using UFOs as an effective cover, which is not the first time that we've heard of that. The SR-71, when they were first doing their, their initial high-altitude test flights before it had the black carbon composite on the outside, it was highly reflective. And so some, not all, as, some, as the CIA and many other people tried to allude to back in the 90s when this all came out, uh, they were trying to make it a blanket explanation for all UFO sightings back then. But for some high-altitude sightings, if you had a pilot flying along over, say, Mississippi, and they say, we saw this silver glistening metallic object Flying faster and way higher than any aircraft we knew of at the time, they were telling the truth. But it wasn't extraterrestrial. It was the SR-71. Historically, we've seen the UFO subject be used as a cover in speaking with Greg regarding his father's uh, research. There is a very logical reason why they would want to, and I say they, I don't know which specific group within the military were doing this, if if in fact their assessment is accurate. But there's a very valid reason for wanting to have a cover story. This was occurring in the mid to late 80s. There were international treaties banning the testing and use of chemical and biological weapons. So if Gabe Valdez's research is accurate and his assessments are accurate, They were conducting studies and tests that were in complete violation of international treaty as it relates to chemical and biological warfare testing.
2: There have been examples, you know, you mentioned the the spy planes and there were also uh, balloons that spy balloons that they were happy to let be mistaken for UFOs and wouldn't issue a correction. I've been unable to find anything where there was an active deception to promote UFO belief, and that you know this operation, if the cattle operation was was a case of that, that's that's one of the few. But sure. you know, the documentation is elusive.
3: Oh, sure, absolutely. Again, I I always preface by saying that's just based on Gabe Valdez's assessments. Uh, I don't know if in fact it, it's true, but it certainly makes a lot of sense. And again, we try to find prosaic explanations for a lot of these things. You know, especially when we look back historically at these cases, these UFO reports from, say, the 1950s and 60s. I mean, we were deeply immersed in the Cold War. So in looking at these UFO reports, we have to always take a step back and consider the climate, the environment that these were being reported in that would lend or suggest the possibility that the government would love to use UFOs as an effective cover. There was one researcher, he's not well
2: known, though, James T. Westwood, and he came to the conclusion that most UFOs were military operations, and particularly the sightings over international borders were incursions of spy craft or something like that. He went to an extreme, but I think there's probably something there.
3: Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, one of the collections I obtained is the correspondence collection of Dr. Leon Davidson, who was a Columbia University chemist.
1: The infamous Dr. D.
3: Yes, yes. He actually lived here in New Mexico. He worked on the Manhattan Project. He had kind of a blanket explanation for many, many years that he clung to in that all UFO sightings were CIA PSYOPs operations. Uh-huh. I think we need to be careful with any one blanket explanation for the UFO subject. I think it's a diverse subject with many explanations, meteors being one, prosaic things that people are reporting that are not anomalous in any way, shape or form. There might be deception at times using UFOs as a cover. Anytime, Kurt, that uh, someone uses like one explanation for all of it, saying it's all military, I question it. And even with the triangles, I, I always start off my lectures by stating there's three sides to a triangle. And I think there's three possible explanations. One, it could be military. The other one, it could be someone else's technology or number three, which I think is the most plausible. It might be a mixture of both.
1: I met Dr. D because I think at the time he was living in White Plains, New York. He came out with Project Blue Book Special Report 14 that was very notable, and he apparently was also a source of the information that allegedly led the one and only Jim Mosley to believe in the secret weapon theory. And I remember one key conversation we had, I don't know if it was at Dr. D's home or somewhere else that we met up with him which was very significant and in retrospect i wish i remembered more of it but we'll get on to more with that in a moment sure. with david and kurt and Jean. you're
2: in the ParaCast.
8: thank you for listening to gcn be sure to visit GCNLive.com today
12: USA Radio News
4: with Wendy King.
5: Ukraine's capital, Kiev, is now under fire from Russian forces. This man explains the scene.
21: He went out just for half an hour, and then shelling began again.
5: Secretary of State Antony Blinken authorized $350 million to help Ukraine fend off the Russians. Over the past year, the U.S. has given more than $1 billion to security assistance to Ukraine. Authorities say columns of Russian troops with heavy weaponry are approaching major cities in the country. President Zelensky recorded a defiant video on the streets of Kyiv. We will not lay down the weapons. We will defend our state. The U.N. says 120,000 people have made it out of the country, mostly women and children, because men have been ordered to stay behind to fight the Russians. This is USA Radio News. The CDC is announcing its loosening mask guidelines for U.S. residents, allowing most people to leave their coverings behind in indoor public locations. Previously, the CDC recommended wearing masks in public indoor spaces like movie theaters and churches and in areas with substantial or high transmission of the coronavirus. During a briefing at the White House on Friday, Press Secretary Jen Saki was asked if there's any concern that people will take this to mean that the pandemic is over in the U.S.
19: There are still people dying every day of COVID. There are still immunocompromised populations. Uh, But what we are trying to work towards is a period of time where we are, uh, where COVID is not disrupting our daily lives.
5: About 65% of the American population is fully vaccinated, and over 93 million Americans are boosted. You're listening to USA Radio News.
20: February is Heart Month. Every year for the month of February, to show our appreciation to Extendivite's faithful customers, we have a sale. If you would like to try Extendivite, now is the time to get a few months ahead. And really give Extendivite the time to show you how it works. Most of Extendivite's long term customers wait for this sale to stock up. People and doctors tell us about the unbelievable improvements that they have experienced in their overall health, not just the heart. Extendivite wants you to experience the power of these herbs. Get a four month supply for only $115 for either the capsules or tincture. Please take advantage of this once-per-year sale and get healthy for life. To order, call 1-877-928-8822 or visit heartdrop.com or find us on Amazon. Extend
8: your life with Extendova.
15: Robert Hastings,
16: author of UFOs and Nukes, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of
21: paranormal radio.
1: The cliffhanger, Dr. D, Dr. Leon Davidson. And Jim was kind of mad at him saying that you fooled me into believing that UFOs were secret weapons, and at that time it looked like maybe Leon Davidson, Dr. D, was suggesting something being more to it than just the one explanation. But I only remember that one conversation. I remember that Jim moved to what we call a four and a half D explanation, something beyond extraterrestrial, but that's the last I heard from Dr. D. David Marler, go ahead, please.
3: Gene, I'm envious. I wish I would have had the opportunity to to speak with him in person. Um, I will tell you, though, as someone who has met with him and spoke with him on the subject, this is another one of those collections that has a, a fascinating story. I was put in touch with a self-proclaimed dumpster diver in New York State. And I can't remember now, it's several years ago, but it was a friend of a friend that somehow got me in touch with this individual he claimed that he came across all this historic UFO material as he was dumpster diving, which apparently he did for a living, <laughs> going through dumpsters and finding valuables or things that he could sell. And he, on a series of nights, were going out to these dumpsters where apparently Leon Davidson's family were, were dumping a lot of UFO historical materials. Now, Officially, his collection resides at the university in New York. Uh, Is it Columbia University, I believe? He has his collection there. But if you look at the inventory list, it mainly consists of books and journals and things that are just general publications that most UFO researchers or collectors have. The one thing they do not have noted in their inventory is his personal correspondence collection. And I'm happy to say that collection is now here through the efforts of this dumpster diver and with a a fairly large purchase that I made from the individual to to purchase the collection from him. There's information between Kenneth Arnold and Leon Davidson, Jim Mosley, Gray Barker. It's a veritable who's who from circa 1950, 1960s ufology.
1: I just wonder what Gray Barker had said, because Gray was always an interesting character. One of the more interesting people of that
3: era. Absolutely. But there's tons of correspondence. And in fact, Kurt, you'll appreciate this, having uh, obtained some research from the archive here. There's a researcher in California that's writing a book on Cold War scientists that looked into the UFO subject. And he reached out to me somehow through his research efforts online, he said, would you have anything that would kind of fit the bill with regard to that? And I said, well, I said, I I have the correspondence collection of Dr. Leon Davidson I obtained about three or four years ago. He almost fell out of his chair. He wrote me back excitedly. He goes, David, he goes, I contacted the university in New York trying to obtain his correspondence, but they said they didn't have it. I said, well, I obtained it through a dumpster diver, and luckily I was able to support his writing of his book, which I think will be coming out in the near future. But he, he was wanting to get those personal insights and thoughts in Leon Davidson's correspondence. And I was, again, I, I, as one researcher to another, I'm always happy when I can fulfill those needs and, and provide that rare material.
1: Speaking of Dr. D, what's your assessment based on the, the material that you have?
3: With regard to his theories on UFOs or just Dr. D in general? Both. Well, I think he was an honest man. Uh, I, again, have not met him, Gene. Again, I'm envious of you in that respect. I wish I could have had that opportunity. But I've talked to a number of individuals. Uh, Tom Talene uh, interviewed him and uh, Jan Aldridge and a number of others. And I think he was an honest, sincere, intelligent man. I don't agree with his idea that it was just all CIA psyops or secret military to explain the entire UFO subject. It uh, could explain maybe a small percentage. But again, I'm not into blanket explanations for, for the phenomenon. But I think he was a sincere, honest man. Um, you know, he was a patriot. He worked on the Manhattan Project. In fact, I have to tell you, beyond UFOs, I, I have some of his personal mementos. And again, for any, anyone that's a history buff out there, just think about this. The material that I received from this dumpster diver not only included UFO correspondence. I have a certificate from the, the War Department commending him for his research efforts to help further the Manhattan Project. This was in a dumpster. I have his college diploma and his high school diploma. This was in a trash dumpster. I have a photograph of uh, Leon when he was very young. I would say looking at the picture, and I'm happy to share it with with you or Kurt, Gene, it's a, a very early photograph of Leon. He still had all his dark hair, so it gives you an idea how young he was. And he's sitting in a, uh, a restaurant in New York, and he's surrounded by all these individuals who I didn't recognize. But all the gentlemen signed this card with the photograph, and it said, good luck to, to Leon uh, heading to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, I believe is what it said. So these were all apparently Manhattan, scientists, Manhattan Project scientists that were working with him at the time.
2: Oh, boy. Okay. So, David, now you need to give us your PSA about how everyone needs to ensure that their collection is going to wind up in good hands.
3: Oh, Kurt, thank you. I mean, that, that I have to tell you, that's my mantra anymore. The one thing I tell people, whether it's researchers or family members whose family member might have been involved in UFO research if they're sitting on information, and Barry and Jan echo this as well. We, the three of us say it all the time. If you have historical material or UFO material that you think could be of use to those researching the subject, make succession plans for it, whether that's to go to an uncle after you die so they can keep it, or find an institution, a researcher, or an organization to donate it to. We're talking today about the collections that we've saved, but I'm here to tell you, and Barry and Jan would echo it if they were here with me now, the vast majority of of collections, unfortunately, have wound up in the trash. And I say that based on Jan and Barry reaching out to uh, the, you know, survivors of researchers that have passed over the last several decades. In most cases, when they reached out weeks or months after the fact in order to give the family time to properly grieve, they would ask them, you know, "What, what happened to your uncle's UFO material? It's sad to say, and I, I'm just gobsmacked to think that people do this, but uh, many times they were told, oh, you know, once our uncle died, we just threw it all in the trash. Nobody in the family was interested in the subject.
2: Uh, horrible.
3: So we, we're, we're slowly, steadily, you know, trying to preserve the history of the subject. And whether it's UFOs or, or any any subject, if you don't know your history, then, you know, where are you as far as a field of research? And so, you know, we're, we're trying to collect and preserve these bits of information, not just for historical sake, but as I like to say, I view each one of these uh, case files, the ones that aren't explained in prosaic terms, as data points. The more data points we have, the more we might be able to discern patterns, as I've, I've written in my book and in my subsequent research regarding triangles, And maybe those patterns aren't going to give us the answers, but it might lead us along pathways that could ultimately, decades from now, lead to answers. But, you know, without those data points, what do we have? Uh, When you think about it, the whole subject, going back to 47, the modern era of ufology, it all started with people seeing unconventional aerial objects in the sky. So what's the best source of information? the raw eyewitness reports that we have that documented these sightings.
16: If one thing I should
1: thing. point out, too, I should point out one thing, too, we're going to break in a moment. And that is that quite often the UFO reports you see in a book are basically copied from other books. So you've oh. got generations of copying. <laughs> in each case, you have the chance that details are lost, changed, forgotten, forgotten. And of course, you know, people like Kevin Randall, for example, has done a chasing the footnotes kind of project where he goes back and tries to find the original source for a case to get a handle on what might be responsible for it, whether it's unexplained or not. And more often than not, finds out that the version you read in the book barely resembles the version that started it all. So, by you, for example, having original investigative reports, each of which may have been summarized in NICAP's UFO Investigator or elsewhere, you may have a totally different picture of what happened. Gene, might you're, happen.
3: abs- you're absolutely right. That occurs so often in this subject and in other fields as well, I'm sure.
1: we got yeah. a break here, and we've got David, Gene, and Kirk. You're
2: in the Paracast. <laughs>
7: Co-author of the UFO Encyclopedia and other books. You're
1: listening to the Paracast. And of course, the other thing about the UFO field is not just the raw cases. Like, for example, you've got Dr. D's letter collection with correspondence with Gray Barker and Jim Mosley, for example. That's the culture of UFOs, the people involved in the field and understanding how they got there and what they did, if anything, that's positive or not so positive.
3: Well, Gene, one example of that, one glaring example, and it's one that I'm still going through. In fact, I'm involved in multiple projects all at the same time, which is just that's just how I always am. I'm always involved in multiple projects. I'm reorganizing and, and refiling all the Project Blue Book material from Hynek. And I have to tell you, admittedly, you know, the Blue Book files, um, uh, most if not all of those are now digitally online. But what gives you unique insight is holding the original documents that Heineck had. And what we see on the the vast majority of these are uh, red felt pen notations. And I'm talking about cases that go back to the early 50s. So long before we knew that Hynek's skepticism was beginning to erode the more he investigated the case. Even as early as the early mid-1950s, Hynek had very critical comments regarding the official explanations. In fact, there was one particular case. The official record card stated ball lightning as the explanation. Heinick crossed it out and underneath it in uppercase letters wrote unidentified and underlined it three times and then continued by putting additional critical comments. He often would uh, abbreviate Air Force with AF. Why didn't AF investigators track down other witnesses? Why didn't AF obtain radar data in this case? So you saw the frustration with regard to Hynek very early on with the official Air Force explanations.
2: We had a question from the forums from Richard Hawkins that kind of fits right here in this conversation. We were talking just a, a moment ago about the theories of of Dr. D that they were, you know, air force projects and things, but based on what you've seen uh, of uh, Dr. Hynek's files and may have read about him, you mentioned his change from skepticism. What were his beliefs about the, uh, his hypothesis for the origin of UFOs?
3: You know, that's a really good question. I don't know if he really, at least in the early years, I don't know if he had formulated kind of a a, a hypothesis or a, a working theory Heineck was, by definition, a true scientist, uh, you know, without putting a label on it. I think he just acknowledged that there was a phenomenon, whatever that was. But I don't know if he really had a pet theory. Uh, my friend and colleague, Mark Rodiger, would probably be able to answer that question with more authority, having worked directly under Heineck for many, many years. You know, I think Heineck was, in fact, a true scientist, much like James McDonald. I don't think James McDonnell necessarily subscribed to the extraterrestrial hypothesis, although that was highly prevalent back during that era in the 50s and 60s. But, you know, much like myself, uh, I don't know what these things are. But I think when we remove the large percentage of uh, knowns, we're left with an unknown percentage of cases. And I don't think we need to label it anything rather just simply say, this percentage of cases warrants further investigation and that's that's what I've been trying to do over these years. Can you pick any cases that suggest a particular
2: origin? Because a lot of times people uh, I think they're making big leaps to, to get to extraterrestrial or military or whatever. You know, it's 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 sort of based on a preconceived notion, but you know, is there any evidence to support a
3: particular origin? Not that I can think of, but as you are asking me the question, Kurt, it got me thinking. I have to tell you, on a number of occasions, uh, and I see this even now with contemporary reports online and commentary on social media, etc., people will say, well, you know, I saw this object, but it uh, didn't look extraterrestrial, it looked man-made. Well... What are you using as a basis of comparison? <laughs> do we have something that we, that we know is extraterrestrial as far as space vehicle or aerial vehicle that we can compare it to? I always love when people say, well, it didn't look extraterrestrial. It, to me, it looked like something military. It's just like, well, you know, how do we know what extraterrestrial technology looks like?
2: Sadly, most of our information comes from the movies. <laughs>
3: yeah, Unfortunately.
2: As far, well, what about this the, the cultural impact of, of the movies? You know, I think that's sometimes overstated, but there, you know, is in terms of science fiction, it it beat flying saucers here and all the notion of alien contact. Um, you know, so I think um, I think there's been a big influence, but you know, how how much and how strong and how lasting do you think it's been?
3: Well, I, again, I, I think we, we have to concede that there, there are those pop culture influences that can influence people into believing they've seen a UFO or shaping their their interpretation of what they've seen. Um, but, you know, it, it's kind of the chicken and the egg. Quite often you'll you'll say, well, people watch these movies and then they say they saw a flying saucer but you know when you look at the actual movies i mean we can talk about amazing stories in the pulp magazines that were in the 30s and the 40s that's a whole other story but you know really when you look at the movies of the 1950s it, it was art imitating life The Flying Saucer reports existed long before the Flying Saucer movies, and much like today, they capitalized on the interest in Flying Saucers because of the Flying Saucer reports that were so prevalent in the newspapers at the time. So, you know, it's the chicken and the egg, which came first. And Mm -hmm. uh, I do concede that, you know— Popular opinion can be shaped by things they see on television and they hear, but when people start making it blanket explanations, again, as I alluded to earlier, I, I, we need to be very careful about using blanket explanations for many of these.
1: Well, if we're still investigating and there's an ongoing phenomenon, we can't have final explanations. If, for example, it's ET, we can't have a final explanation unless we have ironclad physical evidence of otherworldly origin or the presence of of alien bodies, which is allegedly what happened with Roswell, although, of course, that seems to have died in terms of any evidence that someone can point to other than testimony or something like that, or the physical presence of a mass landing where they come down and say, take me to your leader or whatever. Other than that, we don't have proof. We can only make suggestions.
3: Absolutely. And just going back to the historical research I just finished, um, you know, these cases, as I mentioned, were from 47 to 77. And at the beginning of my lecture, I'll be mentioning to my audience that we have to keep in mind in 1950, in the 1960s, um, you know, imagery of UFOs was the quintessential flying saucer you know, it wasn't prevalent in the print media at the time. It wasn't even prevalent within uh, UFO literature of triangular UFOs. It was a very, very small subset. Yet, we have this consistent body of testimony and reporting worldwide of these triangles that have similar lighting characteristics and similar flight dynamics. So, you know, today, yes, people see reports on the internet, and then they might fabricate a, a triangle. But In 1955, if you were wanting to fabricate a UFO story just to kind of, you know, have an aha moment on this UFO investigator, you wouldn't think that you would concoct a story describing a large silent triangle. You think you'd describe a 30-foot silver saucer with a little dome on top and retractable landing gear. but. Uh, despite the fact that that was the prevalent imagery at the time, we do have reports of these triangular objects that bear striking similarity to the modern reports. I would go
2: back to uh, something we, we said earlier about the way to reach people. So Chris Rakowski recently wrote an article based on the premise of, of Googling, where do I report my UFO sighting? And trying that, he found that there weren't a lot of good results. You would think that that MUFON and New Fork would would be at the top of the list, but that you really had to search to find where to report a UFO. So what's your advice uh, for someone who wants to uh, report a UFO? How do they gather their information and share it?
3: Yeah, well, I I think one of the, you know, certainly MUFON is is one avenue, but I've I've known Peter Davenport for many years, the National UFO Reporting Center. I think Peter's done uh, the lion's share of work of collecting a lot of these reports. I think the most important thing, though, is that they at least uh, witnesses at least report the UFO sighting because so many go officially unreported. Despite the fact we have thousands of case files, they're really table crumbs compared to the ones that we did not receive.
1: We're going to have a lot more with David Marler, who's also going to be on After the Paracast, our premium show, part of the Paracast Plus package. And if you're not yet a subscriber, it's real simple. Go to theparacast.plus, theparacast.plus. We have all the sign-up information there. And if you use the coupon code UFO20, UFO20, you get 20% off on lifetime and five-year subscriptions For the Paracast Plus. Our special guest co-host is Kurt Collins. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in
2: the Paracast.
8: Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
17: I represent low-cost airlines. And we know a lot of you are not traveling right now, and we understand. However, if you do need to travel between now and the end of the year, now is a great time to lock in some of the lowest prices we've seen in a lifetime. Hey, in normal times, we can save you up to 75%. But now, airlines are practically giving away seats. We have inside deals on over 500 airlines. Here are a few sample round-trip deals we found. Seattle to Vegas, $35. Chicago to Atlanta. $85. Los Angeles to Atlanta, $100. Of course, there are some limitations, but the airlines want your business right now. And cancellation and change feeds are flexible. So fly somewhere this year, book now, save a ton, call right now.
18: 802-341-4535. 802-341-4535. 802-341-4535. 802-341-4535. That's 802-341-4535
0: welcome back to the paracast the gold standard of paranormal radio and now here's gene steinberg
1: you see that reminds me of course of the common thing that the late stan friedman whatever you think about the kind of work he did At his lectures, he'd ask people, how many of you have seen a UFO? And a certain number of people would inevitably raise their hands. And then he'd say, how many people reported it? And only a fraction would keep their hands up. And that goes back to what I suggested about Project Blue Book before, that it was investigating everything. It only investigated stuff that was brought to their attention People could submit some of the sightings to their local flying saucer club. It would never get the Project Blue Book and therefore technically wouldn't exist.
3: Absolutely. We are dependent on the UFO witnesses to come forward. And one thing I'd like to add to that, Gene, in reviewing these historic case files, I find it interesting as a historian, when you look back to the 1950s, 60s, 70s, really even the 80s uh, prior to the Internet, it took time and it took a little bit of money to report a UFO today. You know, UFO, you know, Happy Bob can report a UFO sighting anonymously to MUFON or the UFO reporting center. And we don't even know who UFO, you know, Happy Bob is. But when you look, he at may report, be happy babs. It might be. It might be. But we don't know if the individual who the individual is. We don't know how credible they are. But it's interesting when you kind of compare that to the historical reports where we have a handwritten letter. Actually, people had to sit down and write a letter <laughs> and lick a stamp and go to the mailbox and drop that off. So it took much more time. It took a few cents to- for the stamp. And I think we have to stop and think about that. These historical reports, it took a little bit more effort for someone to report them. Now, do we have hoaxes? Do we have lies? Do we have misperceptions in those files? Of course we do. You know, compared to today where anybody can just shoot off an email in a matter of seconds and not have it traced back to them, the nice thing is, you know, you have the envelope with quite often the return address, and postmarked. So you know kind of where it came from. In addition to that, I have to tell you, it's such a joy to read all of these old news clippings that I have in front page newspaper headlines. We've got tons here in the archive. But how the reporting has changed uh, back then compared to today. Today, we're all about privacy issues, right? And, and, and privacy this, privacy that. Back then, It's so funny to read these reports that Mrs. Uh, Rose Witherspoon of 409 Elm Street, San Francisco, California, reported today that she saw a UFO. It would quite literally give you the home address of where the witness lived, where they resided, where they had their sighting. For investigators from that time period, it gave them a great lead because you can go to that house and verify, okay, yes, this woman does exist. She is who she says she is. It doesn't get us closer to determining the veracity of their report, but the point is we can at least trace it back and verify the individual is who they say they are. With today's reports online, unfortunately, that's something that we've lost in many respects.
2: Yeah, that's that's unfortunate yeah
3: the the archives
2: have so many treasures so that's i, I hope that uh, more people will, will be able to to access this information i know that you shared some some audio recordings so far and, and apparently there's more to come so so what what have you got out there already on
3: audio 222 recordings done thus far some of these are tapes that date back to the late 1950s 1957 1958 uh, i will tell you uh, it is a, a race against time to preserve some of these documents and audio recordings. I sent Barry Greenwood a photo of one reel-to-reel tape that I digitized. And I will tell you, uh, I, I've got my own little sound studio here for digitizing all manner of uh, mediums uh, to uh, digital format. The chair I'm sitting in right now is where I was doing this digitization work on these audio recordings. Uh, Sometimes I would run the tape through once just to kind of get a flavor for it. And then I would rewind it and then start the digital recording system and capture it. Luckily, with one particular tape, I started recording the first time I ran it through, which was great. Because quite literally, as the tape ran through the rollers and hit the capstan rollers, the magnetic material was delaminating from the vinyl backing. It was like a if you can imagine a real to real machine spitting confetti into the air as it was playing, Ugh. and I was watching this tape disintegrate as I was digitizing it. Luckily, I did digitize it successfully and digitally remaster it as best I could, but it was one of those situations where you got one chance to to preserve the information and it was a local radio show, I believe it was in uh, Virginia. And they were talking about UFO sightings, callers calling in with their UFO sightings. So I don't think it's a stretch or an exaggeration to say this is probably the only documentation that exists with regard to those UFO sightings that I was able to digitally preserve.
1: You think here what they have to do, for example, preserving old film, preserving old audio tapes from recording studios. Say you want to come back and digitize an album from an artist of 50 years ago. And the tape can be in pretty rotten shape. I know we have a full box of audio tapes here of recordings that my wife made. And I am very hesitant to look at them because I think they're probably in miserable shape at this point.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I I will say, though, that was the exception to the rule. The vast majority of these tapes, despite not being held under the best conditions for many, many years. Some of them actually had mold growing on them. I, I was sneezing my head off as I was digitizing these because of the mold and the dust that was coming off some of these. But Luckily, no severe respiratory illnesses uh, occurred, but it was really great to preserve that. And some of these were even foreign. Uh, I believe there was a, an early 1960s New Zealand radio show that I was able to uh, digitally preserve, and that might be one of those on my website also that I, I posted. So a lot of foreign material going back to the '50s and '60s. And um, you know, quite often we think documents when we think archives, but the audio files often contain some really interesting elements. And um, I'm working with a producer right now to take a lot of these historic recordings that have never been heard before by the modern general public and really weave those together with the case files and try to breathe life into some of this UFO history.
1: In terms of audio quality, what level of quality can you get out of this? Do you have to do a lot of work in something like a Pro Tools or GarageBand or something in order to clean things up?
3: Yes. uh, Well, let me say, Gene, that I would say, I'm trying to think percentage-wise, I would say 50% were pretty good on their own. When I ran them through, digitized them, it was pretty good quality. I would say the other 50% were on a scale from one to 10, as far as quality. Um, and some of those you could barely, there were two or three that I think it, there was just nothing on there that was audible. Uh, I tried to, you know, increase, uh, amplify the sound, filter it. Uh, a lot of these had white noise, which was typical of the time. Uh, that's fairly easy to filter out and, and create better clarity. But um I was surprised, actually, to be to be honest with you, given the age, how well the audio quality held up. And only only one tape, the one I mentioned, actually physically disintegrated before my eyes.
1: (laughs) What about things like old wire recordings? Have you found any of those? And if you did, are there any players to be found to allow you to hear them?
3: That's a great question. Uh, uh, The audio recordings that I'll be receiving are coming from Rod Dyke. Rod several years ago purchased the audio collection of Wendy Connors, who still lives in Albuquerque. I actually reconnected with her just about a month ago. Uh, She had retired from the field, and there was a a rumor that uh, she had passed away, but that's not the case. I'm happy to say uh, Wendy still resides here in Albuquerque, and we hope to get together here very soon uh, because I've continued her work of. Digitizing these old recordings, uh, Wendy had a number—not a large percentage—but had a number of wire recordings that she was able to digitize, and all of those original materials will be coming out here. Uh, to your point, uh, I actually have found some refurbished wire uh, recorder players that are uh, available on eBay.
1: In case anyone wants to take a look at that, we're going to have a lot more to talk about here with David Marler. And Gene Steinberg and Kurt Collins wire recording, fascinating. You're in a paracast. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code.
21: If you're like most Americans, you're pretty much in disbelief with what's going on in the world. As we all know, global problems are having local consequences. Too many of them. And if the peanut butter really hits the fan, are you ready? Grocery store supply chains are only as strong as their weakest link. Don't wait for them to break. Now's the time to secure emergency food for everyone in your family. My Patriot Supply is America's largest preparedness company. Our specially packaged and delicious food stays fresh for up to 25 years in storage. It'll be there when you need it. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and pick up several emergency food kits. There are a dozen different sizes that average over 2,000 calories per day. Our food kits will ship quickly and discreetly to your door. Having food storage in your home beats government food lines hands down. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com today and prepare for what's coming. MyPatriotSupply.com G'day,
10: I'm Jamel that works with Dr Joel Wallach and the GCN team with Longevity at TeamG'day.com. By becoming an associate, you provide income for you and your family on your own hours while working from home. So contact me, Jamel, by filling in the contact box at teamgaday.com and I will get back to you personally and provide all the support you need to get started and build your longevity business. Teamgaday.com Teamgaday.com
11: The first ten amendments to our country's constitution were adopted in 1791. The first of these broadly protects the rights of free speech and free press. Free speech means the free and public expression of opinions without censorship, interference, and restraint by the government. 231 years later, free speech across America is under chronic and insidious attack. GCN is under attack. Your freedom is currently under siege from those who do not want you to know the truth. I'm asking our fellow broadcasters and you to rise up and help us defend our right to continue telling you the truth. Would you like to join us? If so, please consider visiting SaveGCN.com. That's SaveGCN.com. From there, you can learn more about what's happening. You may click follow, share, give, and pray. I'm Vincent Finelli.
0: We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com.
1: You see, I grew up at the time when we had transitioned already shows you how old I am. I am old as the hills. And even the hills or not as old as I am, but seriously speaking, we had the end stages of wire recording and the early stages of regular magnetic tape. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I wanted a tape recorder for my parents. I'm 12 years old, okay? I want a tape recorder. And they got me something for 29.95 that was a disc using a magnetic head. And that thing oh. would last three days before <laughs> it would fail. But I cured my stutter with it by hearing myself back. So it had a really? valuable result. I ended up with a recorder from a company called VM or voice of music.
3: Interesting.
1: You can find stuff like that on eBay, but okay. You can find wire recorders on eBay and how good are they? Do they still work pretty well?
3: That I don't know. I, I am more than happy to purchase one if I need to. Uh, I'm just quite literally waiting for these recordings to arrive to see if there are some that still need to be digitized. And if they do, then I'm more than willing to uh, invest in in, uh, obtaining one and uh, can certainly follow up with you and let you know how that works out. But, you know, it's funny talking about previous decades and how technology has changed in my, my lecture for 2022 and talking about these historic triangle reports. I touch on, at the beginning, the diversity of material that's in the collection, in the archives, the NICAP files specifically. I have one slide where I say, well, we have photographs, we have slides, we have audio recordings, case reports, handwritten testimony, typewritten testimony, signed affidavits with witnesses signing the affidavit to the, these UFO reports. And then I say, and we have the 1940s, 50s equivalent of email and then I flash up a picture of a Western Union telegram. We have a number of Western Union telegrams in the old UFO files from the, the 50s and 60s. I'm
1: just looking at the wire recorders on eBay. <laughs> and they've got one here where they will sell it to you for $100. That's cool. Okay. This is a vintage Webster Chicago wire recorder. Model oh, that's 80-1. Brands. Okay, yeah. Uh, the standard shipping, though is $88.34 from Des Plaines, Illinois. Can you believe that?
3: I can. I I actually, one of my hobbies outside of UFOs, my wife and I love to go to antique stores and, and things like that. And I've seen some in stores, very rare that you come across one, but I actually saw one about eight, nine years ago. And I tried picking it up, and the thing must have weighed about 50 to 60 pounds.
1: Aha. <laughs> uh-huh. Okay, so that There's explains why a it's 50 60 $80 shipping charges.
3: There's a lot of weight to those old things. And unfortunately, uh, going back to that era, uh, you have those very delicate vacuum tubes that are in there. And so you always run the risk of having a vacuum tube go out.
1: Well, of course, in terms of vacuum tubes... They still make those. You can still get them. They still make amplifiers and preamplifiers using vacuum tubes. I had a preamp using vacuum tubes from, what, the early 2000s at one time.
3: Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's it's so funny, though. I will tell you, Gene, that, uh, and Kurt, I have young researchers wanting to get involved. Not many, as we know, but since 2017, and, and the the government coming forward acknowledging the subject, there's a lot of younger people that are starting to show an interest in the subject. And a number of them have reached out to me saying, you know, Dave, I'm starting my own little collection. But I have this recording or I have this bit of film. And now I got to find a projector. Or now I've got to get this and I just laugh. I say, Oh, yeah, if you're going to have the me- the various medium, you have to have all the instrumentation to uh, play it. And that's, Like I said, the research room here, it's almost like a a research room slash studio because you have to have the 8mm, the 16mm projector. You have to have the reel-to-reel, the cassette, the micro cassette. You have to have all of the devices to to play the various mediums and ultimately to digitize it.
2: Well, you know, the good part. I heard in there was that there were young people interested. So that's encouraging because, you know, it, at times we were hearing that at conferences we're looking like retirement centers. So a new generation coming in is a good thing to uh, to hear. Absolutely.
3: Yeah. I, like I said, I, I'd like to see more interest on the part of the younger generation, and, and I hope that will continue as historians, we're, we're part of history, and we're going to be relegated to history before too long. So it'd be nice if someone could take the mantle after we're gone. But again, that's one of the reasons I decided to enter into an agreement with the University of New Mexico. At least we know that all of this material will be consolidated and made available for researchers. And we know that it'll have a, a future home for perpetuity.
1: See, that's the big problem here. We've had so many formats for audio and even for video, for yeah. film you know, 8 millimeter, Super 8, okay? I have Super 8 because you got better quality on the Super 8, okay? You have all these products with different formats over the years, and then you get this 70-year-old recording, 80-year-old recording. How do I play this back? Like, <laughs> how do I look at this? How do I deal with it? And, of course, all we have here is every format is temporary. Yeah. And it's hard to yeah. say how temporary, but... Every format is temporary. Like,
0: Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. No matter what you have. You have an Apple Watch, for example. It really does sort of work standalone, but it requires an Apple iPhone mm-hmm. to be fully functional. If you have yeah. a Samsung, forget about it.
3: Oh, absolutely. Even with the videotapes, I, I digitized my entire VHS library over the last two years prior to getting the the NICAP Kufos files. That was a project in and of itself. You know, to your point, Gene, you know, you have VHS, you have uh, VHSS, you have beta, you have all different types of formats just within the realm of videotapes. And so... Uh, Another thing that I failed to mention, uh, and I'm looking at the machine right now, I'll be receiving a huge collection of slide imagery from Philip Mantle when his collection arrives. Barry Greenwood put me onto a device uh, that scans slides. And so now I have that device in addition to the other instrumentation here. So once we get those slides, we'll be able to digitize all that imagery. And going through some of the NICAP files, there were slides There was a gentleman, and I forget his name. He was not a very well-known name. Probably the audience today wouldn't recognize it. But in the 50s, 60s, he did some local lecturing on the UFO subject. In addition to a news clipping that was in the file folder, there were some slides and an audio recording. So I had the audio recording of his lecture. And then I took these slides and were able to convert them into images. And so you have pictures of him lecturing, holding up some models of UFOs that he created. And then we were able to digitize the lecture itself. So it's really nice to synthesize all of those things and put it together. It really tells a story. Can you sync
1: the video and the audio in this sense?
3: Well, I guess you could. They were still images. So, uh, you know, you could certainly do like a slideshow and then maybe overlay the audio uh, in that respect.
2: I'm going to take a stab at the researcher's name uh, or the lecturer's name. Robert C. Gardner. Could that have been him? That's it. That's it. Okay, got an article about him. I, I would love to see that presentation.
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I can. I'll send that to you, Kurt. I- I'll pull up the audio and I'll send you the images. Uh, but yeah, I believe it was Gardner. In fact, while we're chatting, I'll look it up. <laughs> I don't want to. I don't want to provide uh, misinformation here.
1: I'm going to ask you in our next segment. Maybe some advice for listeners who want to preserve and digitize old content, what things they should look out for. But we've got more to come with David and Jean and Kurt. You're
2: in the Paracast.
8: You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today.
18: USA Radio News with Tim Berg. Russian troops have moved into Ukraine's second largest city, Kharkiv. The State Department saying street fighting has broke out in the center of the city and the governor on Facebook saying that armed forces of Ukraine are eliminating the enemy and civilians are not asked to go out into the streets. The conservative political action conference known as CPAC will wrap up Sunday in Orlando, Florida. Speaking at CPAC on Saturday, former President Donald Trump talks about what he believes is a deciding factor in Russia's invasion of Ukraine.
13: I have no doubt that President Putin made his decision to ruthlessly attack Ukraine only after watching the pathetic withdrawal from Afghanistan.
18: Donald Trump Jr., the headline speaker, on Sunday. USA Radio News. Republican Senator James Langford of Oklahoma says President Biden releasing more barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve is not a good plan. The senator saying it won't do much and that Russian oil and gas needs to be replaced around the world. President Biden said recently that the United States will release additional barrels of oil as conditions warrant. As the crisis on the U.S.-Mexico border continues, drugs are continuing to be seized.
22: Authorities seized more than $3 million in methamphetamines hidden amongst a shipment of onions during a tractor-trailers inspection at a federal facility in San Diego. A canine unit for the U.S. Customs and Border Protection alerted the police and officers found 1,200 small packages of meth.
18: The 46-year-old driver was a Mexican migrant and has been arrested for the alleged narcotic smuggling attempt. John Hunt reporting from the USA Radio News, Washington, D.C. Bureau. This is USA Radio News.
23: That's 818-984-6100. This
0: is Micah Hanks of the Grayling Report, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: Okay, David Marler. I'm starting out. I'm a young snapper, like what I was 50 years ago. And I want to snap that whip and figure out how to take this old stuff and digitize it so that it's in a format. It's ready for people to see. I can post it online. I could put it up on YouTube,
3: whatever. Give me some advice. Well, have some money at your disposal first and foremost, because <laughs> if you don't already have the material, it sometimes takes, takes money to obtain the material. But then again, uh, obtaining the equipment and setting up essentially your own little studio uh, and then the time. I don't think people realize how much time it takes to sit down and listen to the recordings or take time to scan the documents you know, people keep asking me, well, when are you going to have the case files done? It's like, do you realize how many case files there are? (laughs) So I would just say, as you enter into the subject, just just plan to have lots of patience, because it, it is a daunting task. One that, again, Barry and Jan have been doing for many decades prior to me coming along, and I'm just trying to do my humble little bit. It takes a lot of patience, you know, working with the documents, One thing with documents that gets very frustrating, we have a lot of the old onion skin paper that does not necessarily do well with the auto feeders on scanners. So sometimes you have to literally take those page by page and do a flatbed scan. We also have in the early 1950s, they had this chemically treated type of paper. And this paper quite literally corrodes it develops this corrosion, almost looks like battery acid. Not only does it destroy the document itself, but the documents that are filed next to it, it will destroy that. And I have examples in my presentation I'll be sharing to show that. So these are the things that you'll be involved with in in trying to go through and preserve this data. As I mentioned, dealing with the mold (laughs) that you're, I I sneeze my head off constantly when I'm going through the case files, uh, inevitably, just due to the decades worth of dust and mold that collects. So I always like to say, Gene, that historical research is fascinating, in my opinion. It can be rewarding at times, but it's extremely boring and tedious work. And that's why a lot of people don't do it. I get sometimes frustrated when I talk to people and they reference their research. And then the more that you talk to them, you realize what they're referencing as research is surfing YouTube UFO videos. It's like, I have a complete different definition of uh, research in that respect. I go to a lot of uh, actual archives. The University of New Mexico has an exhaustive microfilm collection of newspapers that have never been digitized.
1: How far Uh, back do you go in your research?
3: Well, uh, I've gone back uh, as far as World War II. Some of the microfilms that Jan donated are Night Fighter Squadron reports. And according to Jan, he said there are Foo Fighter reports in there that have never been seen before. And so we want to get those digitized. But certainly, as I'm sure your audience knows, I mean, the UFO reports go back to, you know, 1897 with the airship reports. A lot of people are interested in the airships that were being sighted or the ghost flyers. In the 1920s, and then the ghost rockets in 1946, and of course the Foo Fighters in 44, 45. So um, one of
1: those Ed- Edison cylinders, for example.
3: Absolutely. In fact, yeah, I was just talking to Barry Greenwood about that but just earlier this week. You know, there were sightings along the East Coast that people were attributing to Edison. So you know. It depends how far you want to go back. One thing I do not engage in, and, and just while we're talking about that, I don't go down the ancient alien, ancient astronaut area. You know, I'm not disparaging people for doing that. It's just not an area of interest for me. It's one thing to look at a case from 1964, as I have here in New Mexico, where I have newspaper accounts, I have eyewitness reports. And in this one particular case, I actually tracked down the witness who was still alive. And I'm happy to say I've interviewed him. First time to get him on camera to do an interview regarding his sighting. And uh, I've become very good friends, my wife and I, with him and his wife. But, you know, going down the ancient astronaut, ancient alien line of inquiry, it's very subjective. Uh, You know, you're taking reports that in many cases were written in a religious context uh, from religious writings And you're trying to divine whether or not they were truly reporting what they wrote or was it religious visionary interpretations. And again, uh, looking at something 2000 years ago or 4000 years ago, how do you hope to even investigate that or find corroborative testimony? I just choose not to go down that road. I I don't disparage people for pursuing that. I think it's interesting, but I, I want something where I can try to do better verification, if that makes any sense.
2: Understood. And as far as uh, you, you mentioned YouTube videos, so that's often the second step people take today in, in trying to learn more about UFOs. They, they probably see ancient aliens. It's been on almost 20 years now. And, of course, you know, forget how accurate or anything it is. but it's an exposure to the topic. You know, maybe they go to YouTube and, and sadly some go no further. So, yeah. What what do you recommend for someone to, to uh, pick up on some credible information? You know, it's a big thing for a lot of people even to pick up a book these days.
3: Oh, it, it is. It, I think we touched on it earlier, Kurt, and I can't remember if you or Gene touched on this, but it, it's so important, I think, in answering your question. Regardless of your source of information, regardless what you're looking at, it is so important to establish the provenance of that information. Uh, As as I think you and Gene were alluding to, so many cases have been written, rewritten, reinterpreted to where what you're reading today, it falls far askew from the original report. You know, I'm all about trying to trace the source of the story back to its origin. Um, And again, having the original case files here, as opposed to reading a book that incorporated elements of the case file, uh, I I think that's important. And not just with UFO research. I think any historical research that one undertakes, you have to be able to try to trace the origin of these stories back to the source. Um, We're nothing without provenance. in in these cases, or like the Battle of L.A. photo, being able to trace it back to the photographer who actually took the photograph, who had an established career as a news photographer. Uh, That's important information. Um, You know, unfortunately, though, many people stop short of uh, researching a story. They hear a story. They find it tantalizing. They want to believe it. And there it ends. There's no there's no legwork. There's no investigation to trace it. I always tell people, you know, don't trust what anybody tells you in the UFO field, including myself. Take the resources that I've given you. Take the references that I'm I'm giving you in the course of my lecture and verify what I'm telling you. It's just I, I think it's so important in this day and age, especially beyond the confines of ufology, where Objective facts, objective reality seems to be so subjective today. And, uh, you know, I I believe facts matter and I believe in objective facts, not subjective facts. And not alternative facts, not alternative facts. And, you know, so many people have this willingness, as I mentioned earlier, to believe. And I, I say sincerely, and I don't mean this to be snarky. It doesn't matter what you believe about the UFO subject if the data doesn't support that belief. And the one example that I mentioned earlier, if you sit there and say triangular UFOs weren't reported until Star Wars came out in 77, and I can show you the original case files going back to 1947 where we have a rich history of these things being reported, those are facts, those are historical documents uh, that, you know, irrefutably – disprove that notion
1: well this is one of those things there where you can have any opinion you want but you can't make up your own facts
3: (laughs) you know and so you know I, i i try to you know be a balance to those researchers out there and i use the term loosely in some cases that are just out there to just fan the flames of conspiracy theories and you know going down these rabbit holes of belief. Um, there are many researchers that are out there telling you what you want to hear so they can just sell their next book. And- We've
1: got more to come here with David Marlar and Kurt Collins, Gene Steinberg. One more segment that he'll be back with after the Paracast. You're in the Paracast. The <laughs> Paracast. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more
22: about Paracast Plus. If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year. Here's why. We now have a small number of solar generators back in stock.
4: Hey, y'all, Jeff
14: Foxworthy here. Now, if you've ever found yourself repeating the same thing over and over for 75 years, you might be Smokey Bear.
21: Only you can prevent wildfires.
14: That's why I'm filling in for Smokey to switch things up, because there's a lot more to say. starting a wildfire. So for the love of the outdoors, go to SmokeyBear.com to learn more about wildfire prevention. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council.
7: Hi, this is Tracy Torme, screenwriter, producer. You're listening to Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio.
1: This has been such a fascinating discussion. A lot of it, of course, concerned about looking up all this material and digitizing it and figuring out what's going on and trying to get a full perspective of the UFO mystery and maybe have a better understanding of what's going on. And that's important. And that's so unfortunate that with this current Pentagon investigation, oh, my heavens, they're going to disclose. They're going to give us all those secrets. No, they're not.
3: (laughs) No,
1: they're not.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Gene, I think those that were disappointed with the Pentagon report had their expectations set too high.
1: Well, there was supposed to be a subsequent report in 90 days. Yeah. A what? What?
3: well it's so funny because there's been so much focus and emphasis rightly so on what's playing out on capitol hill with regard to the intelligence community regarding uap investigation but the one thing that i've told some of my friends and colleagues is i'm not holding my breath waiting for the government to tell us the secrets of, of the ufos i'm still doing the work that i was doing 20 30 years ago If they come out with some revelation and and they put it all out there, great. But I'm not going to waste time or energy waiting for them to tell us. And again, regardless of where they believe this all began in 2004, we know and I think the the majority of your audience knows there's a rich history there that needs to be told. The history of this subject still needs to be told by breathing life into these old case files and showing files that have never been seen before. Like I said in my lecture this, this coming year, I'm just so happy to be able to show cases and talk about cases that people have never even heard of before, because so often, and this is where I take issue with production companies, they keep rehashing the same 10 or 12 cases at infinitum ad nauseum. How many times are we going to hear about Roswell? How many times are we going to hear about Bentwaters? How many times are we going to hear about XYZ? There are so many cases that people don't even know exist in those files. And so my goal is to try to share those rare, unique files, as I did in my book with some of the triangle cases that were in the military files and in the civilian files uh, that I had at the time. Really just let people know that this is a diverse subject beyond what most people even uh, think of looking at the Internet and watching these uh, TV documentaries on the subject.
2: Yeah, that's a big problem. They they turn the material. You know, we were talking about basically copying from a previous article. Well, they basically copy from a previous show. You know, they repeat case after case. And the reenactments are sometimes so comically bad. It's <laughs> yeah,
3: I did one production up in Canada. I won't say which which channel. And I did interviews for an afternoon and the interviews were were interspersed in, I think, three separate episodes on different cases. I got a call several months later. The producer who had taken over for season two said, you know, we know you were in season one. We really want to have you back for season two, and we want to make sure you're an integral part of it. And I said politely, well, thank you, but no thank you. And they were completely taken aback because I think they're used to most people that just want to be on TV to be on TV. The producer was speechless, and she said, do you mind me asking why you don't want to participate in season two? And, you know, Kurt, to your point, I said, well, I said, point number one, you were completely disorganized. I said, we were rushed around all day. I didn't even get a chance to eat my lunch. And I said, your interviewer was more of an interrogator trying to put words in my mouth, making me say things that I would not say versus asking me a question and getting my honest response. And I said, thirdly, the special effects took extreme creative license in recreating these UFO events to the point where it no way shape or form represented what the eyewitness described based on those reasons I, I want nothing to do with season two with all all due respect she was trying to assure me well we're going to change things and we're going to do this but it's like sorry you got one chance and i'm done and i said <laughs> you, you can find somebody else and of course they did because there's always someone in the field that wants to be on tv no if you're not going to do the caliber of pr- presentation that i i think you're going to do then i want nothing to do with it
1: also i'm not impressed with some of the big name interviewers that I've seen on TV. Like, for example, I saw, this is many years ago, must be a 20-year-old interview, Phil Donahue interviewing the Bee Gees, okay? (laughs) Now, the Bee Gees, great band, incredible harmonies, whether you like their disco stuff or not, I thought they were just really terrific. Two of them, unfortunately, are no longer with us, just Barry Gibb right now. So Phil Donahue is supposed to be this great interviewer, And he's basically repeating back at them stories about them that I guess he wants them to agree with. And he was getting all of them wrong. (coughs) Instead of saying, what happened here or what did you do here? It was, so you had this happen to you and you see the look on their faces and they're basically quietly correcting him. How is that an interview by putting words in one's mouth? I mean, if you're a lawyer... And you're interrogating a suspect on the witness stand. You might do that. Put words in their sure. mouth to get sure. them to say what you want them to say. But not on a TV show. It was terrible. Right. If yeah. you're a Phil Donahue fan, maybe he was better with other interviews. The one he did with the BGS. no. If you're going to interrogate someone and ask them questions, you got to be, number one, respectful of the facts.
3: There's a term that I use, rather graphically so, that I have told some other producers as well that said, we want you to read from cue cards and that, and I politely tell them in no uncertain terms, I'm not a meat puppet. You're not going to stick your hand up my backside and make my mouth move and have your words come out of my mouth. But I won't mention names, but there's a, a litany of people, pseudo-researchers in this field that are more than happy and have been paid to read cue cards. I'm not going to do that. I I believe in the integrity of my research. I believe in in the integrity of the history and the data. This is the thing that I try to convey to some of these producers that I've dealt with over the years. You do not need to sensationalize the subject matter. It is sensational enough on its own. They have no obligation to the public to ensure that they report things appropriately. They're interested in ratings, and I get that i could care less about ratings and i believe again in making sure we tell a proper and accurate history of the subject and so i'm not going to sacrifice my principles to do that just to satisfy a producer
1: i won't ask you to comment about Hangar one then
3: <laughs> oh god <laughs> one of the worst examples of a documentary series i'll just say that
1: well it's a certain ufo organization that likes to keep things for itself but we didn't know until just a few months ago, Kurt and I and listeners to the PowerCast, that when the Pentagon gave out $22 million to Robert Bigelow to do that first investigation, money from that source, the Pentagon went to move on ah. to do some of the work.
3: I did not know that either.
2: The short version of that there was that Bigelow subcontracted MUFON, had them do some research and gather reports and things like that. It apparently didn't end well. That was was strange for the UFO community, which is so distrustful of the government, to to actually be working for it. And I think many UFO witnesses would be kind of horrified to know their their information was potentially shared with, with the government.
1: Dave, would you tell our listeners if they want to know more about what you do, where do they go?
3: Oh, sure. Uh, Thank you, Gene. My website is M-A-R-L-E-R-U-F-O.com. I have a small percentage of the audio recordings that I alluded to that are digitized on the audio archives tab. You can listen to some of those. Uh, Very rare, probably the only recordings of some of those rare radio shows from uh, the bygone era. And also have uh, my report on Farmington in its entirety on there, as well as a number of other links and uh, bits of information. And that's the, really the best way for anyone to reach out to me as well.
1: Hey there. Thanks. He's going to be back, by the way, and after the Paracast, part of the Paracast Plus for subscribers. You can find us on Twitter if you look for the Paracast. On Facebook, you can also find us, but they won't let us put the URL for theparacast.com. So when we put the show up, we give the Apple podcast link instead. That's why we're doing it that way. You can buy branded merchandise if you go to theparacast.shop, theparacast.shop. We have the t shirts and all the other good stuff. And we have the Paracast Plus. Go to the Paracast.plus for more info to sign up. We offer this show free of the network ads and the premium After the Paracast podcast uncensored. We don't have to obey the rules from the FCC with After the Paracast. For more info, go to the Paracast.plus special offer. The coupon code UFO20, that's ufo 2 Use it to get a 20% discount on five-year or lifetime subscriptions. The Powercast. Plus. David Marlar, thank you for joining us on The PowerCast.
16: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.